Okay, so I, so I wanted to kick things off with uh, talking about this book that I had recently read um, and which uh, I you know, encourage you guys to read as well. Uh, that's called Elite Captured by philosopher Olafemi Taiwo. It's based on a, uh, an essay that he wrote in, uh, we think it was the Boston Review, uh, or at least parts of it appeared there. The basic idea of the book is that it is kind of, it starts out as kind of a critique of this notion of identity politics that is not the kind of the original notion of identity politics as it was developed in the 1970s, but this kind of appropriation of the, the jargon and uh, some of the ideas, perhaps, of, of that philosophical development by sort of elite liberal institutions uh, in the, you know, in, in the, the later half of the previous decade and, you know, going on and, go, and, you know, continuing on to today. And it's a book that I thought was kind of interesting because it, in my view, it hits uh, a couple of uh, really important, uh, really important areas that are like, interesting, you know, for, for understanding kind of the current political moment. And so, so the book is called Elite Capture, and uh, the kind of the basic thesis behind the, the book is that the institutions that are kind of supposed to serve, you know, like mass democracy or whatever, have been sort of captured at every single level by kind of a, a, a system, essentially, a, they've been stratified uh, in such a way that they are controlled at every single level by like some elite and the elite itself, you know, has stratifications within it. Uh, but the main idea of the book, I think, or at least the, the kind of the argument of it is that this capture has served to empower these elites at every level. And so it's built these little fiefdoms that, you know, every kind of little baron uh, and sits and lords over but it, what it has not, what they have not done, uh, is they have not used that power to, let's say, like improve mass conditions in a, in a meaningful way, and kind of it sets out the challenge uh, of like kind of building a constructive political program, given that this is the situation. Um, I guess we can get more into depth about the specific examples that that he draws on, uh, but I thought that that was interesting and important because I think it does accurately characterize uh, a lot of the things that are, that are currently happening. And I think it goes some ways toward explaining uh, a lot of the dysfunction that, uh, that you kind of see, again, in this fractal sense at every level, where whether we're talking about the federal level, the state level, the city level, and even like the level of like local neighborhoods or whatever, you just see this kind of like cascading um, problem of these these little these little kingdoms that are that are perpetually like sort of you know being built up and uh lorded over the people uh who who live in them so i guess i guess i'll I'll stop there and like you know uh punt it to you guys to see what you uh what you thought of it i think an important criti critique that the book levies especially in the first couple chapters involves the fact that like in the sort of vulgar version of identity politics practiced by you know sort of the ruling elite the liberal elite the more liberal side of the elite, I guess, would be the best way to say it, that a lot of the uh, concepts are really shallow. Um, and they don't really take into account the fact that, for instance, you know, in the supposed, you know, black community, um, that there's, you know, within that community, or within that population, there is also uh, stratification and an elite class. And that, you know, this sort of idea that, oh, we just need to pass the mic to the black person in the room to talk about black issues. Well, 
you know, uh, if you're in a room filled with Chamber of Commerce people, there's probably going to be a couple black people in that room. Uh, but those people are going to be Chamber of Commerce people. They're not going to necessarily have anything to say uh, about homelessness or maybe nothing, nothing good about homelessness, at least, because their material interests are, at the end of the day, uh, they're with the business owner class or, or whatever you want to call it. Um, now, that's true also of, you know, uh, I don't know, if you're in a room filled with college professors, there's going to be some black college professors in the room, probably. And, you know, they're going to have the perspective the lived experience to, to, you know, in the parlance of this, uh, uh, of this set of ideas of a college professor who is, you know, obviously a culturally elite, not necessarily like uh, the wealthiest person in the world or whatever, but has a certain set of, you know, cultural affiliations and um, biases and priors and whatever you want to say. Um, and I just, I think that that can't be, that that's, that's just a, a, a really important thing to be mindful of. That, you know, the idea that, I mean, it, it's so obvious that it, it seems like it doesn't, it's, it's not even worth saying, but like that one black person can't speak for all black people, one Asian person can't speak for all Asian people, one gay person can't speak for all gay people, etc. You know, you'd think on some level that this would be perfectly digestible within <laughs> sort of the broader framework of identity politics, but I think that like, you know, this, this version of it, that's not necessarily the case. So um, I was struck by that as you know, just a really important point that I think was elaborated fairly well uh, in, in the first few chapters of the book. Yeah, I mean, he, you know, he launches into kind of the, the his, his project with this example of uh, E. Franklin Frazier, who's um, a sort of a prominent uh, black academic of the first, of the first half of the 20th century, primarily. And, uh, you know, he wrote this book called The Black Bourgeoisie, which kind of critique takes to task the sort of the black middle class of the time, for for essentially prioritizing their own advancement over the overall advancement of the African American community. So the idea there being again that you as a like as a black businessman, right, you might carve out a niche for yourself that allows you to occupy an elevated position within your specific social stratum. But what you cannot, but you what you haven't done by doing that is you have not like changed, let's say, the material realities of, let's say, the African American underclass, right? And that's the that's the critique that uh, Fraser levels at his contemporaries, and it's the I think it's close in spirit, I think, obviously, to kind of the critique that uh, Taiwo I think levels against the same sort of representationalist politics you know sort of and you know to, to to give a to give his gloss on it i mean he talks about the problem with talking about you know who in the room gets to talk is that you are presuming that that the room controls like who gets to be heard in the first place right and so the idea there should not be to get like the appropriate types of people into the room but to like get rid of the room entirely right that you should not have this elite control over who gets to like who gets to be heard as a like as a proper political subject i mean i think it's important to sort of analyze this issue it may maybe the problem is that taiwo doesn't really get to what i'm uh what i'm about to say but like i feel like there's been this reductive conceptualization of race versus class present in the popular debate for, I don't know, five, 10 years, something like that, um, and possibly longer in the um, uh, academic uh, discourse. Um, and, you know, I, 
I think it. I mean, I don't know. I don't want to say it would be wrong to analyze Taiwo as uh, taking sides. You know, that is to say, preferring class over race in contrast to some other uh, perceived opponent of him. Um, maybe maybe he does conceptualize himself that way, but that seems not to be useful to, in my estimation. I mean, I think there's a lot that's apt in his critique, you know, but you know, this conversation as well as the book struck me as like kind of transitional, you know, getting beyond not not trying to get beyond that, but not quite achieving it. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I don't think that he would, you know, obviously, I can't speak for him. But there's, uh, whatever, I, I, I follow him on Twitter. And, and also, uh, <laughs> which is, you know, as we know, is the source of all truth. And, um, you know, but both from from his from that, and from the things, you know, from what he writes in the book, I don't get any sense that he's trying to sort of like take sides in that debate. Like, I, I think, you know, my gloss on his uh, book is that he doesn't think that the debate itself is a particularly fruitful one. Right. And so what he wants to do is like move beyond it to sort of to kind of like, you know, what if you if you were to. I guess, again, this is maybe my elaboration more more so than his, but like my sense of it is that. You know, if you were to try to, like, come up with, you know, a genuinely positive, like, theory of intersectionality, you know, such as it is, right? Like, what would that what would that look like? And I think that that's where he wants to go. It's not so much that he wants to take sides. It's, you know, among these things, it's that he wants to incorporate them into a better theory of how we should, you know, think about um, political participation writ large. Yeah, I agree with that. That isn't, you know, he's not trying to take sides. He is trying to get to something else. My own assessment of the relatively short book is that it doesn't accomplish that. And I don't know if that's by, that I wasn't aiming to accomplish that. I was sort of left thinking, okay, so where should we go? You know, what is the positive theory? Is this, you know, book really the introduction to a larger book that actually is going to give us that? Yeah, I mean, I, I do agree that this is kind of one of the weaker points of the book. Um, you know, to, to me, there is kind of like, I thought that the the diagnostic elements were, were pretty solid. Um, the, the the two parts that I guess I, I, I would say I had a, uh, an issue with or that I felt like could be filled in more was part part one is just the, the whole notion of like how elite capture happens. I think that that's something that, and you know, he's a philosopher. He's not a sociologist necessarily. So I don't know if he'd be necessarily the one to develop this, but I would have loved to see a more active development of like, okay, what is the mechanism by which this occurs? Uh, because this, you know, I think he has an idea. There's like, there's bits of an idea that, that kind of like peek out uh, at different times, but it's not super well developed into like a single like a single thought, you know, it's, it's more like fragments of a, of a theory. And yeah, the, the second, the second part is like kind of what, what, what a constructive, uh, you know, political vision looks like. And, and, you know, the second, the sort of the, the last chapter kind of tries to get at that, but it, yeah, it, it does feel sort of incomplete or like under, under theorized, I guess, as, as you know, we might say, uh, that you know the ideas in general like are pre are pretty good like I don't have any I don't have any complaint about that but it uh, but it doesn't feel to me like it sort of fully hangs together I guess as like as like okay this is my this is my theory of how how this would work and maybe that's an unfair ask maybe he's not trying to do that um, but you know if there were if there are two places where I wish that it had been more filled in it's uh, it's those two points.
to the second point, I think, you know, he has this concept of constructive politics, but I think, unfortunately, in the last chapter, constructive politics just kind of seems to boil down to, he references a bunch of sort of potted biographies that appear throughout the the book of, you know, Paulo Freire and Amilcar Cabral and E. Franklin Frazier and, uh, uh, what's his name? Wood, um, Woodson. Carter Woodson. Carter, Carter Woodson. I almost said Charles Woodson. That's a football player. <laughs> and kind of says like, well, these guys were able to kind of construct something out of politics, which, uh, you know, I, I think that's kind of reducing it to just sort of like, uh, and these exemplary people were able to do something is to me, not a particularly satisfying way of trying to say how, you know, some kind of positive political project evolves. It's like, uh, you know, it, it kind of falls back on a, a like a slightly different version of like the great man theory or something. That's to the first point that you said, you know, this is, I think, an interesting avenue of discussion because, you know, I think it's an open question. I mean, the, the phrase elite capture I don't know if it really is a good phrase. And the reason I would say that is because it seems to suggest that there's an organic concept such as identity politics that just sort of, you know, maybe it has like either it's neutral or maybe it's like, you know, it's an uncorrupted form and then it's captured by the elites um, in order, you know, it's sort of like the elites are like the Pac-Man coming along and, you know, um, Jerry's wearing a Pac-Man shirt. Yeah, I was gonna say. It's I was true. gonna say. I am the listener, the listener should be aware that Andrew is uh, regarding Jerry's T-shirt, which references Pac-Man, and that no doubt influenced that that beautiful metaphor just now. I bet. That's well. I guess that's one way of conceptualizing what capture means. But I think another way of looking at it would be basically that there is this elite, whether that's within a particular you know group, such as you know, Black Americans or just, you know, the elite of society writ large. And there are these various ideas coming from the academy and society, and that some of these ideas are particularly amenable to, you know, whatever the particular elite project is, and then those then, you know, uh, are taken up by that project. And, you know, I don't necessarily know if that's being captured, because capture seems to suggest that there's like this strong, vibrant idea of you know, whatever it is, identity politics that, you know, it could go one way or the other. But I think maybe uh, that sort of elides the fact that the power within society rests in these elite groups already. And, you know, the course that these ideas take to becoming a mainstream idea necessarily, almost necessarily, involves running through these elite groups. And so it's not so much that they're like, you know, reaching out and grabbing these ideas that could go either way. It's like the reason that we know what identity politics is, is because it, you know, it runs through this elite course that then brings it into the front and center of, you know, the, the kinds of things that we talk about in books written by philosophy professors. And that, you know, if you went back to the 70s, I'm sure you'd find all sorts of ideas that, that came up around the same time that, you know, had a similar kind of intellectual history that you could trace that just, you know, whether through accident or or just, uh, you know, circumstance or whatever, they were just never taken up in that way. And so we just don't, you know, we just don't think about those ideas. Uh, and so, you know, the idea of it being, you know, like that identity politics, it could have been this uh, incredibly powerful idea independent of this elite structure, which I think that the term capture indicates. To me, I don't know if that's a plausible way of looking at it. I mean, I'm not saying the book necessarily argues that. I'm just saying that, like, you know, that's that's something that one could reasonably think, 
you know, is a mechanism for what the actual sort of capture is. And by not really talking about that mechanism of capture, I think it, it, it's it, it's hard to see how uh, the book sort of conceptualizes of, you know, what would happen to an uncorrupted or uncaptured version of, you know, identity politics or any other, you know, uh, conceptual, you know, sort of ideal matter or whatever. I think in terms of characterizing what the book is trying to do, it is useful to imagine, I mean, I guess, Andrew, you're saying it's it's not succeeding at this, but like, I think an implicit argument that it is saying is false is the idea that identity politics was created by an elite in order to subvert class politics. So he's arguing the opposite, that identity politics is created by subordinate groups within politics and captured by the elite to its own ends. And I do think that point is worth making. Yeah, I, I think he's definitely making the second point. Yeah, yeah, he's definitely making the second point, and that Agreed. is a point worth making. So if if that if the sort of if the book is to do that, then the book succeeds. It doesn't succeed at putting forth an alternative positive <laughs> interpretation of politics that Jerry referenced earlier. And perhaps that's not its point. I, I guess I guess the one of the things that um you know, jumped out at me, uh, Andrew, as you were talking, is that I think it, it, do, it does make sense, right? The word capture sort of implies that there's like this, there's like a pre-existing uh, thing that gets acquired, right? It's like something's out there and you go and capture it. But, but it is a bit of a linguistic trick because you're right that the problem is that these like, the all of these like ideas are themselves kind of generated within the context of, um, you know, of elite control already, right? So it's kind of like the elite, the elite uh, control kind of pre-exists, at least, you know, to the extent that we want to confine ourselves to, like, let's say, non-Neolithic uh, history or whatever. You know, the elite control already pre-exists the ideas themselves. And so you have this phenomenon of, like, some sort of, like, subaltern notion coming coming to, like, coming into existence because it serves like a particular philosophical or political need. And then you have this cycle of like appropriation that takes place around it. Right. They're kind of like these, uh, and, and then the whole elite structure kind of undergoes this like recrudescence around the, this kernel of, uh, like of, of an idea, not, not because the idea itself has like some sort of intrinsic compelling value to like the elite itself but because by appropriating that idea it is able to like position itself as nominally on the side of you know the underclass or whatever but actually on like serves to subvert that whole process of political change like that's something that i actually feel like could have been you know speaking of like elaborating on this idea to me, like that's what he's really trying to get at, and I, I kind of feel like maybe some of the like that that could have that that's the bit that I would have loved to see develop more because I didn't like realize, I guess I didn't make my way to that point until like Andrew started talking and I was like started thinking through it and I was like, oh, okay, this is where if you connect the dots, this is kind of where you end up, right? You're not ending up like 
you're not starting from a position of like assuming that these things are sort of like exist in, in some separate dimensions. You have to start from the position of like where all this stuff is already kind of embedded in the society and you have to look at how kind of the elite structure metabolizes uh, these ideas itself. Yeah. And I mean, as you were talking, I was just thinking of the fact that like, you know, it's not like individual elites are going, you know, hmm, uh, what's a good idea that's going to let me be an elite forever, you know? That's not really a process that goes on, but like on a group level, I do think that like some things just are more successful, like in sort of the discourse space in, in just sort of generating the kind of reaction that people who are in the elite want to generate. The way you were talking about it, like how there's sort of like this grain that sort of, you know, uh, sort of bothers this system. And then there's sort of a, accretions forming a pearl sort of around that grain of the particular like discourse that flows from, you know, the introduction of this particular idea, what becomes useful is, is in large part determined, most likely, I think, by like material reality. So it's like, you know, when there's, uh, you know, when the world is sort of suggesting by the events that are happening that like, it's important that we talk about the character of race within, you know, American society or whatever. Then there's a set of ideas that are sort that sort of pre-exist that, and that you know that may in fact be developed by elites or people who are elites within particular segments of society themselves. Those are those are sort of the things that are like ready to hand for having the argument or the discourse that people in the you know sort of in that milieu of who are doing that discourse think that they need to have. And then you know there's there's like a set of different things that. Um, that they can kind of reach for and say, oh, well, you know, here's a set of concepts that I can sort of toy around with to talk about these ideas. Now, you know, if, th if those concepts basically say uh, all these people, <laughs> all these people who have the money and power in society are bad and they're ultimately the root cause of all these problems and you're one of the people with money or power or cultural cachet in society and are invested in that system, you're just not going to buy that that's the explanation. I don't think it's like, oh, I'm... I'm worried that like, if I argue this, that someone's gonna come to my house with uh, you know, a sword and chop my head off or something. I think it's more like you just, it's just not plausible to you. The idea that you know, some sort of like crazy Marxist theory is actually the explanation. No, 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 the, the theory has to be some kind, something that fits within the things, the kinds of belief systems that make you successful in American society. So, you know, if the, for instance, like the idea that, you know, racism is an individual problem and can be solved on an individual basis, that is a highly amenable, you know, idea to the mind of someone who has succeeded in American society. So I, I guess I, I just, to elaborate your point, I think, you know, that seems to me to be a plausible mechanism for which these ideas are sort of taken up from this, you know, area where there's a bunch of sort of percolating ideas in, in the discourse and the culture. And like, these are the kind of the ones that are maybe m more well-suited to the elite mind. <laughs> and it's not necessarily because they have some kind of uh, conspiracy or that they're acting in naked self-interest or anything. It's, it's, it's a more sort of acculturated version of that. Yeah, I mean, I, I just wanted to like uh, cite this uh, paragraph that uh, I would have liked to see this paragraph like developed into a separate chapter of its own because I think it's it really touches on like an important point, but it just kind of like exists in, in this particular case in chapter two as an aside. He writes, it would be a mistake, however, to understand everything that happens on the platform um, and the platform here being as uh, 
uh, he's using the example of a social media platform, but you know, it really could be uh, any any public space, let's say. Uh, uh, it would be a mistake, however, to understand everything that happens on the platform as a process orchestrated by the elites. They are its results, like the platform's unequal distribution of profit and attention itself. Elites do often make the environment worse and block solutions, but to blame the problem of elite capture entirely on their moral successes and failures is to confuse effect for cause. The true problem lies in the system itself, the built environment and rules of interaction that produce the elites in the first place. So there, I think it's like, he's got the germ, I think, of, a, of a, like a really important idea that about like the way in which the structure of the, you know, the system it, itself kind of produces, uh, you know, produce it both produces the elites and is produced by them. Uh, and I think this touches on a point I think we've made before where, you know, we've talked about how like, you know, you can look at. Uh, an individual like you know jeff bezos or whatever and you can say like okay this this guy's he's like a bad guy right but then his own specific badness is like not is, is secondary to like the question of okay well if he wasn't there who would occupy his place and the answer is like the system would produce like another person to 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 fill that niche you know maybe that person would have like you know, individually, morally, I don't know, more palatable characteristics, or maybe not, or maybe they'd be worse. But it's like a person like Bezos represents like a particular position within like the overall hierarchy. And so somebody's going to occupy that position as long as the hierarchy itself exists. I think it's Marshall's turn. <laughs> I don't have a lot more to say besides that. I mean, I think there's a lot to discuss on these general areas, but about this book... <laughs> I'm not so sure. I, I guess I'll, I'll drop like one more thing that I thought uh, that, that I kind of was surprised actually not to see, uh, which is sort of, um, I don't know if you guys have uh, are super familiar with, maybe not super familiar. I mean, I'm not super familiar with it either, but uh, sure, you, you know, you're aware of, uh, you, you know, the Italian theorists of sort of elite, uh, you know, elite stratification, uh, Vilfredo Pareto and Gaetano Mosca. And I was kind of surprised I didn't see either of their names kind of show up in this in this book, which I, I thought would have been interesting because I think there is, I believe it's Pareto's theory. Uh, it's been some time since I've uh, delved into this literature, but uh, but it, but you know Pareto has the, I believe is the one who has this theory of the, the elite circulation, which I think like does a really good job of kind of uh, capturing the, the the idea behind what's what goes on very often in, in these situations, which is that like the elite has to sustain itself somehow. And it's difficult to sustain yourself indefinitely without any sort of ejections of new ideas or new, or, you know, new blood sort of theoretically speaking, or perhaps, you know, at some point, maybe even literally speaking, I don't know if Peter Thiel is successful in his, um, uh, editorial. Um, anyway, um, so, but yeah, so the, so the elite needs to sort of like perform this process of circulation, right? It, it, it has to, not so much that it has to shed, it, circulation maybe not quite the right, right word, but like um, it's not so much that it has to shed dead weight as it has to like get infusions of sort of new energy, so to speak. Um, and and Pareto is a guy who like writes, you know, very uh, florid energy level metaphors. Uh, it's a d delightful aspect of his prose, as I recall. But anyway, uh, so and, and, and to do so, uh, it 
looks out for people who can be elevated to its level, right? Um, and so I think there's like a very obvious analogy here to kind of uh, the institutions of higher learning that provide entry into this into this stratum from uh, pretty much anywhere, right? You know, if you you can go to a place like Harvard or Yale. And you can and you can go there as a you know if you come from like a background of disadvantage, um, that is a place that opens up like just immense opportunity for you, right? Now what that does is it draws you into the sort of the elite stratum and incentivizes you essentially to leave behind, you know, the place where you came from. Until until of course you like return to become congressman of that place after like you know being in. McKinsey or right. you know, a giant law firm or you know or Arnold and Porter or whatever. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and then you then you get back to talking about how oh you know I'm just salt of the earth. Yeah, you know, I'm from the streets. Boy made good, I'm from the streets. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so and so you know what that what that does is obviously it uh, you know it uplifts a certain small section of people from from this level, turns them into like elites. Uh, the elite itself benefits sort of like from a uh, reinforcement of its own position. And then um, what you get on the other side of it is that uh, the kind of the people who might otherwise sort of like the, the people who are who don't make it to that level. Right. They're told, well, oh, you know, you should have been like, look at this guy or, you know, look at this person. They made it to, uh, you know, they made it to Harvard, they made it to Yale, they made it to McKinsey, whatever. Um, you could do this too, but you don't because you're stupid or you're bad or whatever. Uh, so, like, it's a, it's a kind of this dual reinforcement of, of the elite power structure. I, I'm sure that, you know, Ty was probably familiar with this work. Uh, it doesn't appear in here. So I was kind of a little bit disappointed in that regard because I thought, I think it uh, kind of, ham you know, really gets at something that really vital that's happening. You know, there's this sort of like uh, idealist trap that you can fall into in these kinds of conversations where, or or just, you know, in this discourse, generally speaking, where um, it's very easy to think like, if we can just defeat the idea, then the underlying problem will go away. Uh, but, you know, the idea is in some ways like this, the symbolism, it's like the, it, it's like a rallying point for an existing group that has power independent of the idea. You know, MSNBC would be MSNBC and would control a certain slice of, you know, cable news viewership, regardless of whether it's woke or anti-woke. You know, it, it's sort of like, it's like if you're in a battle and you're thinking, uh, you know, against an opposing army, you think if we could just, if we could just destroy their flag, then we would win because that's the thing that they're, that they rally around. And that's the thing that, that propels them forward. Well, it's like, you can, design a new flag you know you can come up with a new set of ideas if you defeat those ideas but you leave you know the question of of like who actually has a power in society to the side then that 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 group will simply just reconstitute themselves under a, a different banner and i think this is like one of the sort of shortcomings of what i would call like sort of anti-woke or like anti-identity politics positioning is that ultimately it's it's arguing about things that don't really get to the heart of the matter. Yes, okay, it's true that there's a certain segment of like the political elite, especially the media elite, it, you know, that has adopted these ideas and that that th these ideas form sort of a core part of like, I guess we'd call like the left flank of capital or something like that, you know? 
but you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be these ideas. There would still be a liberal flank of capital without these ideas. It would just believe something slightly different. And that might be annoying to you that they that these are the things that they believe. And that, you know, this, I mean, I, I personally find a lot of these concepts when sort of applied in this vulgar manner to be incredibly counterproductive, annoying, you know, uh, stifling of discussion. I mean, it, you know, it, it imposes a tax on people who even want to participate in the discussion. Like you, you might have to reveal some intimate personal detail about yourself in order to establish credentials to speak. I mean, there's all sorts of, there's all sorts of ways that you can, you know, uh, analyze how this is like not a particularly good mode of discourse or whatever. And I would probably agree with a lot of those. But at the end of the day, it really is, it's a meta discussion. It's a discussion about like the media. It's a discussion of like how ideas are presented. It's not a discussion of power. You know, nobody wields power uh, because uh, of these ideas. They wield power through these ideas, which is totally different. Well, you know, I guess that's that's a little too strong. I mean, obviously people who, you know, are sort of recruited to to be the expert on particular things within the particular discourse framework, like, I don't know, Ibram Kendi or whatever would not be you know, the, the cultural powerful figure he, he was if a different mode of discourse had arisen instead of, you know, standpoint epistemology, uh, anti-racism, identity politics. That seems obviously true, but, you know, at the end of the day, who gets to write the official book of the ruling class is not really who, <laughs> uh, or, or a segment of the ruling class, is not really who, you know, actually uh, is ruling, you know. Well, I think that sort of usefully unites the uh, elite circulation that Jerry was talking about with a, a critique of um, Taiwo, because I do think, I mean, I think that's an apt point. He's kind of engaged in shooting down the emblems of elite status or uh, an elite grouping that exists right now, or even maybe slightly out of date, um, without really undermining the status of the elite and you know whether you can do that at all through articulating ideas is an open question but i i would agree with that critique that it's sort of like okay well you know the maximal success that taiwo can possibly have is making it making it impossible for an elite to inhabit a certain rhetoric and that success doesn't amount to undermining the existence of the elite or really attacking it where it lives um, in any way that it would it itself would find uncomfortable. Right. I, I mean, I guess I would just say that, like, I think he's fully aware of this. And like, the, I would say the vision that he's advancing is a vision that that does do that. Right. Is that he's not interested in saying that, like, oh, this is like a misapplication of, I don't know, whatever identity politics as, as properly understood. I mean, even though that may be true. He, he's he's trying to say that we we should be doing precisely like the thing that you're talking about, Marshall, which is that we should be trying to dismantle like the the system that like kind of gives rise to these sort of like pockets of of influence itself, right? Because otherwise, you know, yes, there will be just a different banner that if you if you destroy the banner, that will not destroy like the thing that makes the banners, right? So. Just wanted to make it clear that I think he he totally recognizes that critique. Yeah, and I you know on some level it's I I really I appreciate you know doing mind battle in the arena of argument. I like having discussions about you know why particular ideas are not very well thought out or are like not good discursive modes or 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 whatever. But I mean you know I think it's kind of instructive that like one of the central metaphors of the book is talking about you know the the the, the parable of the emperor with no clothes. 
basically the emperor is walking around naked, having been told that he has a type of garment that only brilliant people can see. So he thinks that anyone who tells, who would tell him he's naked is, you know, an idiot, but nobody, you know, everyone in fear does, you know, decides, oh, well, best not tell the emperor that he's walking around hanging dong or whatever. And, uh, you know, at some point, like a, a small child says, oh, he's got, he doesn't have any clothes on. And then the spell is broken and everyone realizes, oh, this guy's naked, but he's still the emperor, right? You know, he, <laughs> That might be a moment of being able to, you know, uh, of of being embarrassed or whatever. But you know, at the end of the day, he can still go back to the palace and put on all his robes and still be the emperor. I don't, I don't think anyone's calling the, you know, naming and shaming of naked emperors as like a, you know, sort of like a legitimate viable like power transfer mechanism. Yeah, and just just to, just to jump on that, like, uh, you know, in in since I used the examples of like Jeff Bezos earlier, I mean, Tywell basically says the same thing. He's like, the problem is not. The, it's not the, the the story of the garment and it's not even the emperor. The problem is the umpire itself, right? So that's kind of a metaphorical, uh, I think, statement of, uh, of of the same the same thing, right? Well, and you know that's the thing that that makes these discussions so hard. Is this, it's it's very easy to say, uh, you know, um, these ideas deployed by ruling elites or a certain segment of ruling elites are you know malformed, sim- overly simplistic, um, you know whatever term you want to use to say that they're bad. And, you know, it's very easy to sort of say, and then, you know, the solution being that actually, you know, oftentimes the solution being actually these, this terminology is more amenable to sort of my project and I'm going to reclaim it. Or maybe this is just such a a bad set of discursive tools that it needs to be abandoned in favor of something else. And all that is, you know, I mean, um, it's, it's fine for the purpose of, cleaning up the discourse or whatever, if that's what you're interested in doing, which to some extent I, I am interested in that. But um, but yeah, like then you get up uh, to the hard problem of like, well, you know, we have these elites in our society. Uh, they just become more and more elite as time goes on because, you know, the sort of fetters on their eliteness are, you know, slowly removed often, you know, by them, by at, they are the ones doing the removing because they have in fact like captured or occupy all these positions uh, of power within government uh, and society that they can do that. And then, you know, uh, <laughs> and then you think, well, you know, oh, well, it's time for a nice old revolution. But of course, you know, as far as we know, the age of revolution has passed in this part of the world, at least. And this, this of course, is the part of the world that, that controls all the other parts of the world for the most part. So, uh, you know, you know, there's a, there's a cold, cruel reality of having, you know, hundreds of military bases and, having sort of these ossified uh, power structures in which nothing ever changes, you know, just sort of the, the grinding gears toward, uh, y- you know, oblivion as we just decide, you know, that people are just going to, you know, sp- <laughs> I don't know, spend a bunch of energy mining Bitcoin or whatever, you know, it's like, you know, there's an obvious mechanism for fixing this, which is just saying like, you can't do that. You can't have these military bases. They need to be shut down. You can't, mine bitcoin because bitcoin's not worth you know money anymore you can't you know whatever the case may be like uh there's a there's a way to fix it and it's just to say you can't do this but you know in order to do that you need to have people in positions where they can say you can't do this and i mean to the extent those positions even exist anymore that's another thing is just like a lot of these sort of removal of capital controls and you know internationalization of the economy has, has made it very difficult for even like the nation state to control these things. All of which is to say, I don't really fall to any book that just sort of says, here's something bad in the discourse, here's something bad with sort of, you know, in the, in the realm of the ideal, 
and let's do let's do mind battle on who you know is uh who rules the day in this in this argumentative arena because you know it's it's pretty easy to figure out what you would need to do to actually fix like the the material reality that creates these epiphenomena but it's almost impossible to figure out how you would actually do it yeah i mean i think that the, you know there's a good reason why um you know, in the last chapter, the climate occupies such a such an important uh, part of his book, which is that, you know, he's he's talking about sort of these mitigation efforts that various um, activists have come up with uh, with regard to, for example, like addressing the problem. of Essentially, um, you know, I guess we, I, I guess broadly speaking, we would call it like climate racism, essentially, which is that, you know, the global south is ending up paying the the price for um you know, the development, the development of the uh, sort of the imperialist north. And I and, and I think that's that's one of those situations that's super instructive because it's like it really puts you face to face with like a tractable but very difficult problem that cannot like that does not go away on its own. Right. Like the physical environment of the world is not subject to like your political like arguments right you cannot convince the weather to be otherwise it just it is what it is right and so like you know canute could not uh command the waves to retreat and so like that's a situation where you just have to look at it you'd be like okay like what are the actual like physical things that we need to do that we need to change in order to make this work in order to like not ruin the the, the world in which we live you know and and i think that that's um it doesn't necessarily like come through uh, as much in the in the book, although he touches on this, but it has been like, you know, reading his other writings, it has been like a big theme, uh, you know, climate reparations and this whole idea of like, uh, you know, a just uh, like a, you know, just climate order, I guess you could say, uh, has been like really central to, to a lot of his writing. So I, I think the, I think that that's definitely like one of those moments when you're faced with kind of like this brute physical reality and you have to decide, OK, like what are we going to do, you know, subject to, let's say, our belief about what kind of the good life looks like, like, how are we going to fix this? And I, I guess I guess I would say to again, to to hedge on this uh, a bit, you know, he, he, he himself hedges on it, saying that he's not providing like sort of a comprehensive like theory going forward. But I think that that's he's inviting people, I think, to look into those kinds of projects, because I think he thinks that that's where uh, a lot of useful information can be found. Something that Marshall and I were talking about recently was the fact that, like, like what you would actually do in the face of whatever actually trying to solve problems is, it, you know, there's there's a sort of expansive, more capacious version of human ability that that is sometimes required in these things. That, like, I think everyone, uh, at least uh, who you know, whatever my age or whatever, like, probably has some kind of like austerity mindset when it comes to like the capacity of like the collective capacity of humanity to deal with issues because you know we can't even build like a nuclear power plant uh like that the the scale like the the the, the in investment and like time frame necessary to develop such a thing is like you know basically completely within our technical capacity but like evades our political capacity completely i mean forget power plants right like uh, you know just talk about sim something simple like you know uh, i i don't know like a bike lane <laughs> or like we're <laughs> like running a bus you know running a bus more than like you know once an hour it's just like shit like that 
Right. Well, and you know, like, uh, like these things all require like a certain amount of follow through on the part of some kind of central authority, you know, and that's just something that is diminished now that that capacity doesn't, doesn't exist the same way that it, that it used to. I mean, well, you said, you know, it's, it's the weather is outside of our arguments, but like, you know, if we could make our arguments into the technological capacity to do something, I mean, we could control the weather. It's, 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 probably we can't do it tomorrow. I don't think it's like a, a reasonable solution to climate change or whatever, but like, you know, you're telling me 500 years from now that like it's, it would be uh, outside of human capacity to make sure there's no more tornadoes or something. I fully believe that there's a way to, you know, within human ingenuity to, to, you know, figure out how to do stuff like that, but not when you're certainly not when you're an austerity mindset. Yeah. But I, I do think it's like kind of interesting that, you know, we have this like notion, I mean, you know, geoengineering is, uh, uh, you know, quite a popular idea, I think, among some, like, sort of, in some certain sectors, right? And, you know, I, I'm not, I'm, I'm sort of like a, I guess I would say, a soft skeptic on this, in the sense that I think it's an idea that has, like, some, con- like, some conceptual merit, but it's also an, one of those things where, if you do it wrong, the consequences can be extremely disastrous, as we know. And what's interesting to me is that people are, seem to find it like more conceivable that we could like literally change the weather, which again is like a really hard thing to do than that we could like just not break the thing in the first place, right? So like this idea that well, we, maybe we should just like not, you know, put the, um, you know, not burn the fossil fuels. Like, no, we can't do that. Even though we already have that technology, like we, we know how batteries work like none of that stuff is a mystery um we could you know it, it like it's a bit of work to you know have a non-fossil fuel like economy but it's doable it's something we know conceptually how to do pretty well but there's so much like it elite investment in it that is like that's just like an inconceivable proposition right people are just like no like what if we just what if we i don't know like block out the sun. I mean, this is a literal idea that people have come up with. Like, what if we just like inject particulates into the air to block out the sun? Like, come on. <laughs> like, can we, maybe we could, maybe we could like try for the part where we just don't like fuck things up in the first place. I don't know. Well, yeah. And I mean, I, I think part of the allure of those kinds of solutions is that like, if you're someone like Matt Iglesias or whatever, you can imagine I mean, I think you already, it comes baked in with an austerity mindset. You're not thinking about having like some kind of central authority like that has the capacity to even build like a nuclear power plant necessarily. Like I said, you know, it's like you're thinking about like how can we do public private partnerships so that we can like, you know, come up with nimble, innovative solutions to climate issues, you know, mitigation or whatever. And, you know, all that's all that is like clearly within the sort of ideological framework uh, of like, you know, the existing ruling elite or discourse elite in the case of Iglesias or whatever. So, I mean, it's, uh, you know, they, they do not have what I would consider to be like a Promethean viewpoint on human capacity, which I would say that, you know, it would be nice if, if there were at least some people who did, you know, but uh, um, I think like Lee Phillips is probably a good example of someone who, who writes from that perspective. I'm not in any position to say, oh, this is like the perfect, you know, this is what we need to do, or even if, you know, it's because it seems like it's, that's kind of putting the cart before the horse. You'd have to be able to do it first. But, and I think, you know, it, like you said, it's, it's not so much a question of the technological capacity, which, you know, I mean, if there's one thing we have, it's a lot of technological capacity. It's the political capacity. It's the, 
ability to like invest in the future and to even believe that there is one. And, uh, you know, I think that's increasingly a, a fleeting dream. I found out today that, um, you know, uh, apparently there's uh, Eric Adams, who is the uh, mayor of New York City, uh, uh, is uh, forming an exploratory committee uh, about for a pres- potential presidential run in 2024. And like, on the one hand, I'm like, maybe that would get him out of here. Now, I don't think he would actually succeed even if he ran. But it's just like, you look at like, he's actually kind of like a perfect emblem of this sort of cycle of like people who get elected to some office and then their only purpose in like being in that office is just to like show up in like in the newspaper and then move on to like another office like he's not a, he's not a person with like a constructive program he's just like a he's like a pure distilled vibes guy but his vibes are all about like like what's the next thing on my list of like things to check off it's like okay well I mean, I guess after, you know, having been like mayor of New York City, you know, first he was like, I, I forget what he did. He was like a councilman and he was like a borough president, which is like the most useless position in the in, in all of like New York City politics. And then he was like, then now he's like mayor. Uh, and I guess, you know, the next step on that, you know, is a uh, is a uh, president. Right. Like he's, he's going to skip uh, the, the gubernatorial uh, position. And just uh, go straight to the uh, chief executive of the of the country, and you know, and at every every step is like, what 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 has happened? Like, what there's there's no point in like your being here other than to get to the next to the next stage. It's like, what's your like actual constructive agenda? And there's like nothing there. And sorry, I'm going off on like a stupid rant about like my stupid mayor, but like, but it's just, he's just like one example of like the way that like all this stuff just, it's just, it's just froth, right? There's no like, there's no like substance in here. Nobody's trying to like accomplish some sort of like concrete set of objectives. Nobody's showing up and saying, okay, like, you know, how can we make, like, I am the mayor of New York city. How can I make like the buses go faster? Like that's a concrete thing that's in my power to accomplish. Like, it's just like, that's nowhere, right? It's it's all just like, okay, well, how can I create enough of a sensation that will catapult me to the next level of like a thing to get where I also will not have any particularly strong ideas and I will only like exist to uh, show up at like parties. Yeah. Okay, great. Everybody wants to show up at parties. Like nobody wants to do the actual, like the actual work of governing. I mean, I don't think it is within his power to make the buses run on time. I think that's what this is telling you. It's like the the office of mayor of New York is useful only insofar as it can create the vibes that would lead a person to become president of some other political office. I mean, we're just so far. I mean, it's like, you know, the, we as you yourself said, we can't even make the buses run on top. We can't build a, a bus, a bike lane. Um, you know, so like, why are we talking about blotting out the sun to solve climate change? Obviously, it's technologically within our capacity to build a bike lane. It's also technologically within our capacity to blot out the sun. The technology is only serving to enable political incapacity, if you know what I'm saying. It's like, you know, these are the only type of solutions we can come up with to an intractable political or social problem or order, you know, that fundamentally requires a political or social solution. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. I mean, like, it's it, it just, what, what I'm saying, I guess, is that it is a, it is like a symptom of this sort of 
uh, thing where, in a formal sense, like, the mayor of New York City does have the power to do this. Like, you could just, like, make, you could just decree, like, that's going to be bus lanes. And, in fact, like, that has happened in the past. Like, you could just, like, say... We have a bu- yeah, but that wasn't why Eric Adams was elected. Was no, no, elected. no, no, no. I, I understand. I understand that. Like, I, I, I guess what, what what I'm saying is that, like, I, I guess I've, I've phrased this before, but there's like the, there's a sense of like, even though the formal powers exist and like they could theoretically be used, in fact, like none of the people who are like elevated to these positions are people who have any inclination to you to use them in in such a way. But I mean, okay. So, but but okay. Like going back to Taiwo here, it's not that the person who's being elected doesn't have the inclination to do this or that. It's that the system that put them in place is fundamentally not a system that is going to build bike lanes. Right. No. No. I, I totally agree with this. Right. It's that. Yeah. It's not. It's not just like a personal failing. It is. It is in fact that the fact that the system produces like people who are in fact going to govern in this way. It's hard to look at this and like try to disentangle like what are the parts that contribute to this because it's like the dysfunction is so like interwoven with all these uh, like all the dysfunctions are all interwoven with each other. It's like this gross like tumor of like just <laughs> terrible like uh, like terrible structures that are all like compound each other. And so it's hard to say, like, you, you know, you, you can you, you look at it from one angle and you can you can say, oh, well, maybe the problem here is like whatever i i don't know like part of the problem is let's say you know who funds the campaigns but then there's a secondary second problem about like kind of the way in which the laws of the city government are structured itself and like what they require and just like all this shit right and like you pull on any one of these threads and about the best thing you can do is like pull out like a little bit of it but you won't have excised the actual like the actual problem. So even if you even if you ident- even if you correctly isolate like a specific thing that keeps you from getting like a particular action accomplished, it's it's like impossible to separate it out from the larger mass. So it's like an extremely like I I, I don't know what what the word is like it's frustrating obviously but it's also extremely like like it induces it induces like a kind of paralysis almost i was gonna say too you know uh, i'm gonna commit the grave sin of personalizing the government but you know uh an important revelation in my life has been that there's like on some level there's only a rhetorical difference between can't and won't you know um it's like it's like look i i have the capacity to do a lot of things there's plenty of things i'm just not going to do though because they don't you know they're just not things i'm going to spend time on you know like I, I, in theory, well, whatever, it doesn't matter. But uh, the, um, you know, the, the the government has the capacity, in theory, to do a lot of things, but like it won't do them. Um, and the fact that that that's not because it can't do them, on some level, is not a, a an, you know, that meaningful of of a difference. It it does have a difference going forward, of course, which is that you know, um, there are things that if you want to do them, in theory, you could. Um, so I think that that's, you know, to me, that's the important distinction. It's it's because I think there's there's a tendency to kind of look at this and say, uh, well, they could do this, but they're not doing it. Therefore, you know, if we just push the right levers and pressure the right way and stuff like that, you know, um, and maybe you'll make some movements around the margins there. But I think mainly that that's a, a more of a signal that like these, you know, that there's something 
not even residing in the power structures themselves. There's just an, uh, a baseline capacity when you have enough human knowledge and power wrapped up together to do a lot of you know, incredible things. And uh, articulating that that power should be used in that way is important, I think. Um, for that reason, but but it's you know I, I agree with you that on some level you're just you know you're just pushing against the pull handle if you're um, if you're trying to make the system as currently constituted do something that it won't do you know with the argument basically being well it could do it if it wanted to well the the, the point is it doesn't want to you know that's that's the whole like that is a fundamental characteristic of the the people who are it's not just the people it's like the whole the whole system produces these people who as you're saying they, they you know they, they get elected in a certain way and they have certain constituencies that are none of which is premised on the idea of ever doing anything so well you know. i mean ju just like you know ideas like say identity politics being weaponized by the elite at a certain point in time to satisfy a political need and essentially being discardable so what you're saying is like absolutely taking down that idea is mistaking defeating or, or destroying the enemy's flag for defeating the enemy that that's true on the level of ideas just as say defeating eric adams is true on the level of politics he's just like a person that's put forward or spit out by a political system that you know is whatever it is <laughs> and like we're gonna keep you know, batting these balls away like a a, a, a batting cage or something like that. They're not going to stop coming just because one has been has been defeated. Right. Well, and it's also, I think, the case that, you know, I don't know if AOC becomes mayor of New York or something, she's not going to be like the savior for this either because it's bigger than the person who occupies the... Well, no, I mean, if AOC became mayor of New York, what you would have is exactly what happened when de Blasio was elected, which is the yeah. entire power structure uniting to ensure that that administration is not effective right. just as you have going on right now with aoc being in congress which is the entire power structure uniting to ensure that that political movement can't be effective right and you know the um for that reason you know this is it's just another form of the same argument to be like oh aoc is compromised or aoc you know needs to do this or that in order to be a true progressive which is of course just a completely meaningless word anyway but at the end of the day like you know, all these people are, exist within and are in some, you know, in largely subservient to on like the non-rhetorical plane, like the material plane, they're subservient to dynamics that are just, you know, like that can't be contended with by one person, you know? And so, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it, I think it's even an open question whether these dynamics are like contendable with through the existing structures of quote unquote American democracy, you know, even if you had a mass movement you know that that could actually take control of the levers of power would it be able to contend with the material dynamics that like are underlie the sort of political power structures in this country i don't know i mean that, that that's part of the opportunity to be very pessimistic about this is that even if you could line everything up not just so that you won the presidency not just so that you won congress uh, not just that you had a supermajority, not just that you could you know whatever get the supreme court packed or whatever to to for people amenable to your ideas, even if you had the entire political system geared towards some kind of social democracy or something even farther left than that, like, would that be able to unseat like the money? Would that be able to actually put pressure on the money or would the money exert so much pressure that, you know, it would just show that there's nothing that can be done under the, under this set of circumstances, you know? 
and I, I mean, I, I don't even know, but like acting, acting like it's uh, uh, that somehow one, what the, the change maker can come in and just, you know, completely override the system, especially like one out of 435 Congress people or whatever, you know, like can come in and, and deal with this. It's like, you know, it's, it's people magazine for um, politicos or whatever, you know, it's not, a, <laughs> it's not a serious political discussion. It's, it's something to get mad about online. I, I guess I would say there's there's a bit of a difference, you know, between sort of at least formally speaking, right, between, um, you know, being being the mayor of a city and, you know, being an individual legislator, right? You have like different, there's different like formal levers that you are supposedly able to to push on. But yeah, I mean, it is it is questionable, right? Like you 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 are constantly, and this is a, I think something that I guess another thing that I. I maybe wish that uh, Taiwo had sort of like pressed harder on, which is this, you know, larger notion of like, what are you going to do, right, when capital discipline comes calling, right? Like, what what is your response going to be to that? Because that, I think, is, you know, as Andrew, I think, correctly pointed out, like, that's going to be the thing that any government that is going to try to change this, like, is going to have to contend with that. Right. And and right now it doesn't it's hard for me to see, like, who has a good idea of. Well, there's some good ideas, uh, you know, that um, <laughs> some ideas that, you know, maybe I shouldn't shouldn't speak into being uh, on a recorded podcast. But um, but yeah, I mean, there's like it's like it's like what are the uh, specific like what are you going to do? What are you going to do when that eventuality sort of sort of comes to pass? And. Just to, I, I don't know that we have any anybody or like a, a theoretical movement that is uh, that is ready to grapple with that. That's that's kind of like, I guess, my pessimistic assessment. <laughs> I guess this this kind of gets back to something that you and I were talking about before, Jerry. But like part of the reasons for pessimism there, I think, are that people are so easily diverted into just talking about these and arguing to death these various epiphenomena of, you know, as opposed to trying to contend with like like what would it mean to win and what would it mean to wield power? I don't know. I mean, that, that doesn't seem like something that like just one person can kind of <laughs> think through everything on. It seems like it needs to be like a real, you know, collective movement or whatever. I think as, as Taiwo's book says, when it talks about like social media platforms and stuff, you know, the, the, the sort of the built environment of those places where a lot of people interact notionally around these ideas is, is geared toward generating conflict. And then, you know, the forms of that conflict are, well, you know, do you have the right version of identity politics? Do you have the right identity to speak on this issue? Is AOC good or bad? Is Eric Adams good or bad? You know, is it good to have a based vibes mayor or, you know, whatever? I don't know. Like, I don't think any of those are ultimately like very productive discussions outside of like the very narrow focus of like the political day-to-day -day stories or whatever, which ultimately are pretty boring and inconsequential anyway so do we want to call it we can i don't know marshall what's your uh you, you have... i mean i don't have a grand uh, uh summation here i mean i think we've uh adequately dealt with uh taiwo <laughs> sure i don't know, i think there's more to say about identity politics but perhaps we can leave that for another time yeah i mean i i guess on the on that topic like and this isn't specific necessarily to uh identity politics uh but it's Kind of more general there's like a a, a term i guess that uh, i i don't know if i am the inventor of it uh i, I wouldn't go so far <laughs> I, I think it is I, I i even before hearing what it is i think i'm i i can confidently state that that's the case 
<laughs> All right. Well, I appreciate your confidence in, in, in me. Um, I haven't heard this anywhere else, but I, I'll just I'm just going to assume that somebody has said this before. But there's like a, a term that I'm fond of uh, that is, is called discourse leakage. Um, and uh, what I mean by that is that like you start off with some theory or other like way of talking, let's say, that has a particular uh, particular application in some restricted restricted setting, whether it's prof- like a pro- it's usually professional jargon of sorts, but doesn't necessarily have to be. It could be really anything, right? And so it develops as a kind of like you know as a as part of like a some sort of in group conversation um, that that means something very specific to the people who participate in this sort of who are part of this linguistic community. And then kind of as these people interact with others, and especially if this is an academic environment and they have students, those ideas like they, they, they permeate and they leak. Uh, and they leak both in the sense that they are like distributed to other people, but they also leak in the sense that they leak their semantics. And and the the things that people mean by them just start start changing. And this is not like a to say that this is a negative, this is just something that happens, right? Uh, it happens, I think, in every discourse domain. But when one of these like leakages becomes particularly like particularly sticky, just to keep with the uh, the fluid metaphors here, uh, um, within a an influential stratum, right, of society, then it starts like it starts kind of like permeating like larger discourses right it starts kind of infecting them in a way by the and when that happens like it just it is now impossible to tell what anybody means by anything right and so like this is i think something that has happened to like terms like identity politics right it's like to to try to understand like what we're talking about when we use that phrasing is like to engage in like a linguistic archaeology of how this has been used and to try to specify like at what point in this timeline do you like intend to place yourself right which is like just an insane thing for anybody who's not who doesn't do this like as a as a kind of a hobby or professionally to try and do like normal people just cannot like shouldn't have to do this um and i and so i think that this is like uh again you know this is moving i guess far afield now from uh from taiwo's work specifically but i do think that this is like a phenomenon which is just which in some sense is neutral because it happens to everything, but it's also something that you just have to be like on guard about, right? Like you have to think, you have to ask yourself like, okay, this particular like way of talking is all of a sudden has all of a sudden become like really prevalent, right? Now, is that like, what is it connected to? Like where, what are its origins? And this is not to, not to commit like a genetic fallacy and say that, well, it had the wrong kind of origin. So it's like a bad idea or whatever, but just to say like, Given those origins, like what, where along the spectrum of these these meanings are we trying to land? And I think that's something that people just like don't really do. Again, like for obvious reasons, just because it's a pain in the ass. Uh, it's a pain in the ass to even articulate it, really. But it is something that, like you know, I think if you're a professional discourse haver, it's uh, probably probably a good idea to, you know, understand what exact what it is that you're dealing with here like just as a as a purely kind of linguistic um phenomenon yeah i was just gonna say i think that connects into the fact that a lot of arguments in sort of the sort of the rawlsian public reason uh like corruption that the discourse exists under 
public reason basically being the idea that like you have these private ideas in your head and you translate them into sort of a lingua franca like a moral lingua franca when you're um conversing in public so you know for instance uh i might be i might have some avowed position based on my uh uh you know uh deeply felt christianity or something like that but if i were trying to make a policy argument for that in a nominally secular country i, I probably would couch it in term of in terms of more like universal uh language even though what i was really thinking was i need to be a good christian or whatever in the in the sort of the, the the version the godless version that exists now i think a lot of a lot of arguments proceed in the they become like linguistic arguments i think the classic example that i think of is is like the you know is donald trump fascist argument which is basically like well i you know i i want to prove essentially that donald trump is bad so surely we can all agree that fascism is bad therefore if i you know it, the way that i'll make my case is by proving that he's a fascist and you know, we see that this doesn't really work with anyone who's not already convinced that Donald Trump is bad because they understand intuitively that, that the argument you're making isn't that he's a fascist in some academic sense, is that he's a fascist and he's bad. And I think, you know, so much of the discourse, so much of like trying to, uh, you know, this is obviously mostly true, you know, very true of politicians, but I think it's, it's also true of like people who are in like, you know, sort of the legacy media spaces and stuff like that too. But they don't really want to, they don't, you know, they're not really saying what they mean most of the time. Um, and it's like subtle, the differences in what the ways that they say that what they say differs from what they really think, but it's also perceptible. You know, you know, when someone is arguing from like a universalist language for a partisan end, that really the underlying sentiment is that I am a partisan of this particular political faction. I'm deploying an argument in favor of that because I want that faction to succeed. I mean, that is like, you know, generally speaking, uh, you know, what happens in politics and what happens in sort of the political discourse. Uh, like what you were saying, you know, something like identity politics, for instance, is like, it's just a term that has like a vaguely negative connotation to most people, you know, so identity politics ends up being like, this is the thing that I don't really like, because I associate it with things that, you know, I, I don't know exactly what to compare it to. But, you know, my sort of best practices for discoursing is that you should just try to say what you mean as much as you can because you know the last thing I want is to be embroiled in some kind of linguistic argument about whether something fits some arcane definition of a particular category with someone who's really just trying to argue that what I'm saying is bad because it goes against what they believe and really the kind of argument that I want to have is like the one about why you think what I'm saying is bad and why it goes against what you believe because at least for me in the, you know, <laughs> just in the argumentative arena, like that's what I'm interested in. You know, I'm not interested in like having a, a, a weird debate about whether some something fits a particular definition of fascism or, you know, whether identity politics in it, you know, what, what the proper definition of, is, of it is. And if you properly define it, then it's good. And if you don't, then it's bad and all that kind of stuff. I find, find all those to be um, very um, epiphenomenal arguments because really, you're all you're just sort of dancing around the fact that like well it's I, I like this or i don't like this i think this is good i think it's bad um those are the thing those are like the real things that people think about stuff not like oh this fits a definition therefore it's bad nobody thinks like that well now we're getting into the epistemological status of language which i feel like is just a giant open door for jerry to discourse uh several hours on 
on philosophy, which I was trying to get him to do earlier, but somehow declined. <laughs> we, we've taken a very Wittgensteinian turn on this <laughs> on this particular episode, which, uh, you know, which which I think is great. But uh, also, you know, uh, yeah, it de- definitely might send me into a into a black hole of, of, of discourse. Right. Well, you know, what I like to do is I like to use that sort of Wittgensteinian linguistic discourse as like a backboard against which to sort of propel the ball back into the field of play of raw emotion and passion, you know, because that's really what, that's what, that's what drives people. And, and, you know, basically saying that like, you know, these words that, you know, these word arguments that you're having are uh, obfuscating like the actual interesting thing that you at your core, you know, this is what I, you know, I think like this, most people don't think about why they think like this, you know, because all they're presented with it, it, in terms of arguments are these like incredibly impoverished arguments about like, you, you know, where two people are both saying something they don't really mean, you know? And, uh, and so I think, you know, understanding something about the nature of language helps you, I think, get things past, you know, out, out of the abstract realm of, you know, defining words and things like that. And back into the realm of like, just having like a legitimate disagreement and then like being able to examine why it is that you disagree about that thing, you know? And that's obviously just, you know, this is like a very kind of liberal thing to do in like a, you know, personal discourse or whatever. I don't think politics really follows this kind of discursive mode. I think politics is about winning and wielding power not about like winning and wielding arguments, you know? <laughs> but uh, but I do like to wield and win arguments too. So this is this is my little guidebook for how to do that as I see it at least. At some level, right, it's like, you're never going to get around the problem of like that, that you do have to, in fact, like just state things, right? Like language is fundamentally, you know, underdetermined and it's very, it's difficult to like, you're never, you're never going to get like the perfect ideal, like expression of the concept that you're trying to, that you're trying to get across. Right. It's, it's everything is always mediated through like other connections to other words and blah, 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 blah. But I think that I do think there's some promise in in just the the fact that like knowing when to kind of strategically open a new front uh, in in terms of like the you know in the in the discourse wars so to speak just in the sense of like there are ideas I think that are you know some ideas I think are sort of like what what I would say are you know squishier than others right like you can you can press on them harder and you can kind of get them to you can get them to move you can get them to change your shape we're we're like really deep in into like the the meta debate now but i think like one good strategy is that if you're if you're like kind of the a discourse warrior type person um is to try to figure out okay like where what are those places where you can like really really give it a shove and like move something in the conceptual space which is something that i think like you know the the right has uh has you know for whatever reason has done quite well and i I think actually the reason they've been so good at it is because they they try they try a lot of different shit and some of it sticks you you know the latest i i think iteration of this is sort of the you know the whole critical race theory like fight right that that and and maybe this will be you know this will probably prove kind of ephemeral in some ways uh because it's hard to sustain it but this was like you know it got them like a good you know year of news cycles or whatever and it's had some effect 
Um, and they'll probably like drop that one and move on to some other stupid thing. But they're really good at this like experimentation where they just like they're just like throwing different things out there and just seeing like, OK, which one of these like registers, which one of these like gets people to uh, engage with whatever it is that, that 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 we're doing. I think I think the left needs things like that, like a good use of, you know, this sort of like discourse power that we have is should be coming up with places where, you know, conceptual spaces where things can be attacked in this way. There's been some successes on that front, but like, it just feels like the the language itself that, that generates these on the left is like very academicized. Like the same critical race theory, like the content, you know, the, the sort of the, the original stuff in the, in the content sense, it's really hard to get it across as like, like a comprehensive, like, and it's not a comprehensive point of view. I mean, it's a collection of disparate, right? Disparate thinkers and writers, and and they're not necessarily all united in like some, some individual, like so, so some like, I mean, they, they have they have certain commonalities, obviously, but they're not necessarily united in, like, in in a movement sense, right? And I think it would be good for like people to, um, you know, for people on the left to to work on that, which is why I think like you know one of the things I really appreciate about like Sinjukta in our previous conversation, which is that, you know, she has identified something that's like really like a really important one of these like things that you can like really push on. And it is pretty academic. So it's like, okay, whatever. It's not going to be, people are not going to be maybe campaigning on this, but it provides like a kernel, like a nucleus around which you can build something that can be a, that can be a campaign slogan that can like permeate the wider culture. So yeah, I think that's a that's a like there are other there are many other useful projects out there, but you know, if you're an idea slinger on the left, like it's a good good to try to identify these kinds of these kinds of concepts that can be like really, you know, really shoved against uh and, and maybe generate some kind of I don't know, mimetic shock, if you will, uh within the within the broader discourse. Well, I think it's a mistake to imagine that like there's one linguistic key that can oh no 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 not at all i mean i think that that's kind of the genius of the conservative approach to this that you're referring to it's like you know like the utility of creating a moral panic over critical race theory isn't that you now have the one rhetoric that can destroy the left it's like that's something that's useful to you in a particular moment to distract and or get what you want and sort of kick the ball to the next political moment. Um, and I think that's really what the sort of conservative approach to language and politics is is successful at. You know, right. so even, and I, I mean, mean, as I admire Sindrick's ideas and so on, and I think she has the right interpretation of politics, I don't think it, the right way to, to think about it is like, okay, well, here's something that we can build a political structure around or i should say a linguistic political structure around you know that can only come from ideology i guess with the critical race theory stuff it's like uh the 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 sort of knee-jerk liberal response is basically like to say um you know either there's no such thing as critical race theory you're just you just invented a term which is kind of true or what you're saying is is critical race theory is actually the definition of it is like something that's more benign and it's fine you know, th those are inherently like like the kind of arguments I was talking about before, like the word definition arguments that that are stupid. Because like if 
what is what are you actually trying to do? I mean, I guess the thing is, I think with the Democrats, they're not actually trying to do anything. So they, you know, these are great arguments for them because they can just get mad about something. But like, you know, imagine a different, slightly different political party that actually did want to do things. <laughs> imagine that that party's, you know, um, an important part of that party's, uh, you know, aims was to, you know, teach a true and accurate history of the United States. Then it wouldn't be about like what what is the definition of critical race theory and does this fit the definition and is the definition actually good or bad? It would be about well these are the things that we want to teach. I don't care what you call them. It doesn't you know this is this is a, a meaningless epiphenomenal argument. You know this is uh, just coming up with some category and then trying to shove things into it. You know and I mean you know for the most part I think Republicans are pretty good at. When, when those kinds of arguments are wielded against them, the kinds of arguments like is Trump a fascist or whatever, that will basically amount to the same kind of argument that the Republicans are making about critical race theory, where they say, this is a bad, we can all agree this is bad, um, and I'm going to lump these things in with it. And then I think Republicans, generally speaking, when, they, when, when that happens to them, they have something they want to do, which is, you know, in the case of is Trump a fascist, they want to be a fan of Donald Trump and reelect him to office or whatever. So they say, well, I, you know, I don't care about your semantic bullshit. <laughs> like it doesn't matter to me. Uh, I sidestep this. Whereas I think Democrats, for the most part, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know if Democrats actually have any sort of cohesive desire to like defend a, a certain conception of American education or something like that. Um, and so when when they're pressed with this issue of with this argument that says, here's a category of bad education. And all these namby-pamby liberal things are in that category, um, and therefore they're bad. Then they then they go, oh well, actually, there's more nuance to the category than you think. And actually, if you go through the definition of what the category is, it actually, it, you know, it's not these. It's actually good. It's actually, you know, benign. But it, you know, at the end of the day, they're not trying. They're not giving a full-throated defense of like the things that they want to teach or whatever. That that's what I think an effective way of organizing like a discursive response to that kind of argument is, is basically to say, well, there's a, there's a baseline reality of something I want to do in the real world. And I'm not going to be pushed off that simply because you invented or mustered a particular category uh, and are trying to define me as fitting that category, you know? Uh, and again, this, I, you know, this is, it's all about like, uh, you know, winning arguments or whatever, which is not really you know, I don't know what that does. I, I, I do, I do like doing it. Like I said, so it's something that I think about, but like, you know, it, it helps to have conviction in order to win an argument, you know, that it helps to believe in something and to want to do something. Uh, and if you don't want to do that, well, then, you know, if you don't have that, then it just becomes, uh, these arguments actually are, are very favorable to you in, in some sense, because you can get really mad and spill a lot of ink and give a lot of speeches about things that, ultimately just amount to definitional categories. Well, this seems like a good place to leave it. Oh, we'll see you uh, next time.